Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Dangerous Dinners podcast, episode number seven. Look at seven episodes. Who knew we'd get this far, eh? Who knew? I am your host, as always, Tom Green. Hope you're all right. And hello to a load of the uh, new listeners who've come along this week. load of people have found the podcast off the back of the Tom Grennan episode. Still so many nice comments coming in about that one. So if you've still not heard the Tom Grennan episode from a few weeks ago, why don't you go back and give it a listen? See what you think. And as always, thanks to Tom Walker for last week. What a bloody good guest Tom Walker was, wasn't he? He was really nice. Um, so many people just, <laughs> so many people messaged me going, hey, how normal is Tom Walker? Yeah, he did did come across as very normal, didn't he? he yeah, I suppose he, I suppose, I mean, he is just a normal guy that can sing, I guess, isn't he? Really? So how's your life? How is everything? All good in you? All good, all good with you? I felt like I was quite, um, had quite, quite a depressed vibe last week on the podcast. Didn't mean to be. That's not what my, that's not, that's not the energy I'm trying to give out. But it was just, it's been a bit of a dark few. It's been a long, it's been a long winter, hasn't it? It's been a long winter. Feels like we're out of it now, though, doesn't it? The weather's getting a little bit better. We're coming out of lockdown. The golf clubs are opening. The beer gardens are going to open up. Positive vibes. And thank you for all the lovely messages you've been sending in. It really means a lot. Uh, thank you so much to a lovely email I got from a guy called Jake, who listens to the podcast every week. Thanks, Jake. And a lovely DM from a guy called Michael. Those ones that stuck out to me this week. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jake. Little shout out to you. Today, though, we've got a big old guest for you. He is comedian extraordinaire Russell Kane. Yes, the Times said he is one of the quickest, most stimulating stand-ups in the land, which is quite a quite a compliment, isn't it? So, Russell Kane, um, what do I know? Multi-award-winning comedian, I guess, presenter, author, actor, scriptwriter. That's Russell Kane. Um, best known for hosting three series of Live at the Electric on the TV, regular appearances on Live at the Apollo and Unzipped and Celebrity Juice and I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. He was nominated for the prestigious Edinburgh Comedy Awards winning Best Show in 2010. He's just a very famous bloke. The Independent said he's a frenetic comedian. The Telegraph said one of a kind. He's a very, very busy boy and he's very famous and he's got a massive social media following. So today... We welcome to the Dangerous Dinners podcast, the legendary, it's Russell Kane. The Dangerous Dinners podcast with your host, Tom Green. One celebrity guest, one spin of the roulette wheel, and a tour of the best and worst takeaways, which are delivering to us tonight. What will it land on? We let fate decide. 
up for grabs today, we have the poorly reviewed Kansas Fried Chicken, everybody's favorite, Lahore Karahi, and if it all goes wrong, Pizza Palace. But before we do that, it's time to meet our celebrity guest. They're famous, they're funny, and they just arrived downstairs. It's time to bring them up. Please welcome. It's Russell K. Hey. I'm for myself. I think cheering for yourself is absolutely fine, man. Well, it is American. I mean, it's a very American-style music and intro, so Americans do like to clap and cheer themselves, so I feel like it's allowed. Go me! In this occasion. Um, thanks for doing this, Russell. I'm glad it's called Dangerous Dinners and that we are recording this in the early evening. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, I'm being forced to call it Dangerous Teas up here. Oh, it's yeah. not tea. Tea is a drink. Tea is a hot drink you can put sugar in. Yeah. Lunch is in the middle of the day. It's not dinner. So given that you're from Preston, I'd be interested to know in your mind when you say Dangerous Dinner, what time of the day you think we're at? Normally we do. Dinner for me is like 7pm. Exactly. Yeah. So how long have you been living down south then? I've been in London for the last three years, I think. But then I did a few years in Leeds and a few years in Manchester. I've lived everywhere, but I've just moved to Muswell Hill and I feel like London's my adopted home now, you know? So I, I said to my father-in-law, do you want to pop round for dinner on Wednesday with my father-in-law and mother-in-law? And he said, oh, I'll have to check with my boss. Thinking I'm going to want to take... Like, like, they cannot get their head around the fact dinner is in the evening. And then tea's, tea's the last meal of the day for them. That's what my dad's so, like. So dinner is lunchtime and tea is what we would call dinner in the yeah. civilised world. <laughs> and you've just, you've joined us straight from the TV today, right? You're like rushing round today. Yeah, I get, I, um, I'm living up in Cheshire, bang in the middle of the country. And during lockdown, I've kept myself tasked up. And one of the things I've been tasked up with is a job on Channel 4. Anywhere between one and four times a week, you'll see on Steph's packed lunch as the sort of jester in the background arsing around. It's a great job for lockdown because it means... It's, I mean, effectively, I am performing stand-up to an audience every day. And the, the, as far as I know, it's the only legal way you can do it. Cause all the other comedy shows I've done have been no audience. Even Comedy Central stuff, even comedy shows are no audience. Mm. And yet Steph's Pack Lunch, a topical news daily show with tips of how to clean your dishwasher. <laughs> I'm doing stand-up, I'm doing warm-up in the breaks, I'm doing this, that and the other. Because the cast, um, the, the guests, the audience are technically cast. They're all on contract, so we're allowed, everyone's allowed to be there. Oh, so wow. It's great. So I've been staying... Gym fit, as it were. Now that's that's great, though, man. It's it's good to see you on TV so much during lockdown as well, because I watched that show quite a lot, and it seems like you genuinely really enjoy that gig. It's the 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 arguments I get through with the lawyers. I mean, today. Uh, it was about, I had to do a story about getting blamed or fined for things that weren't your fault. Right. So I wanted to try and get a joke uh, saying exactly, I keep telling the manager of Tesco Southend, I'd just been bitten by a snake on the groin and I had to milk the poison out now and again. <laughs> <laughs> right there and then. So I had to change that to, I had no choice but to take evasive action. So it's a weaker punchline, but I've still got the joke out. But I love it. Every day is a battle, but it's a good battle. So you have to send those off to the lawyers, dude, to feel like this is what I'm going to try and say today, can I? I get briefed about eight in the morning, so I get up at seven thirty, um, get showered, get make sure I'm in the car by eight fifteen, and um, I get briefed by email. These are your five stories. I then have to write two minutes of it is stand up, or even though I'm sat down, TV friendly, and also there's a difference between stand up being TV daytime friendly and TV daytime live friendly. Yeah, for it to be live friendly, there has to be an extra layer of safeness for whatever reason everyone's just a bit more nervous so i then quickly write that and so that i can leave house as late as possible rather than do a script meeting i send it as a voice note to my producer with the script wow. and then just cross my fingers and see what they come back with 
it's funny the type of things you can't say because I, I was doing a Tinder joke the other day about um, you know in some places in Yorkshire some villages are so small you can do a manual Tinder and just slap the faces of the people you want to swipe and I, I, the whole joke was fine apart from the word slap yeah slap you'll fall over on that one yeah well a little bit of structure that I do every single week is I've, I've written an introduction for you would you like to hear it I would very much like to hear it <clears throat> this is normally quite a nice ego boost for anyone that's on the podcast and I, I, yours was especially fun to write Uh Okay, so he's been holding down the comedy scene for over 10 years now, a household name in the UK and Edinburgh Fringe Specialist. His list of accolations are endless. He's a multi-award winning comedian, presenter, actor, author and script writer. He's hosted three series of Live at the Electric and he's the funniest man I know. And he's joining us here. It's Russell Kane. Wow. Boom. I mean, the, the nicest bit was over 10 years, the fact that I've been going over 15 years. I prefer that because over 10 years sounds impressive and over 15 sounds <laughs> a bit granddad. So that, that, that was the best bit of that was like I've achieved it all in five years quicker than I have. <laughs> yeah, because I can so work out that. where to sort of draw that line because 10, a lot of, when I was sort of researching this, a lot of, a lot of stuff happened for you in 2008, which for me feels five years ago, but is actually more like, as you say, more like 15 years at this point. It, it depends when when one marks the beginning of stand up. I think it's when you left work and tried to do stand up and started getting paid for it. You can't count like just doing one gig as an experiment or standing up at a wedding or something like that. So I tend to put two thousand and six as my proper proper start date. That's when I when I started doing it properly. I would say so. Yeah, fifteen years. And right, this is this is how the next hour is going to work. It is the, the dangerous dinners podcast behind me? I've got a giant roulette wheel of the worst takeaways in your local area is there anything you're <laughs> dreading tonight well the problem you've got is as opposed to some of your um other trendy london guests is i've moved up north because i married a girl from sale so i'm living in cheshire <laughs> and uh we're recording this dear listeners at 20 past four so yeah. london's going what's the problem i, I can get sushi at 20 past 4 a.m by, <laughs> by blinking into my google specs we still yeah. get paper leaflets through the door for takeaway doesn't open till 6 p.m thursday to sunday i mean it's like the 1980s yeah so i can imagine your wheel has probably got about two dividers on it at 20 past four on a friggin wednesday which is when we're speaking i'll be honest we've tr- we have struggled we really have <laughs> normally it's on a triangle rather than a wheel normally on here we've got like meze and sushi and wings and curry there wasn't as much near you russell if i'm honest but we do have some good <laughs> we do have some good ones on there so should i spin it and find out what you're having for dinner tonight i'm just interested to know what's open because i've looked <laughs> i mean i've only just said goodbye to delivery doesn't yet operate in your area that was yeah. only three months ago <laughs> i've uh, one of the one of the fun ones and i didn't think this would be the most exciting was we could have had costa coffee delivered that's just not fun though is it no and also would ha- you know you don't i'm assuming you don't want this to be a comfortable experience for your guests and not I really no. coffee. i piss pure coffee right three two one <laughs> There's only one thing I'm dreading to say. Tonight, Russell Kane, Mm -hmm. you are going to be having dirty local pizza. Please tell me it's Pizza Express because I can handle that. (laughs) It's Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Listen, the last thing I had was something called like Perfect Pizza in about 1999. When I started doing stand-up, I had to clean my physical act up big time because I've got a very high-energy act for anyone that's not seen me. So I do fitness, not because I give a shite. I don't want to live to fucking 90, screw that. But I can't do stand-up without getting out of breath if I don't eat properly. And I have not had a dirty fake meat pizza. Not that I'm just 
brands is, but do you know what I mean? This is normal... all beeped anyway. We don't say brands here. So yeah, everyone's so... guessing as to what this pizza is. Well, can we leave in it's not Pizza Express without beeping it? <laughs> yeah, totally. So, so, dear listeners, it's not Pizza Express. No. Well, should I send a large pizza your way then? I think so. If you go the what would be called on a civilised pizza menu, a margarita, yeah. I'm guessing it'll be called cheese and tortum or something like that. On this. <laughs> it literally call, is. In case people don't recognise the word margarita. That's why. Right. Um, a cheese and tomato pizza from is on its way to you, Russell. <laughs> Christ. It's like, it, this is the most dangerous thing I've done in years. Like If I miss a day's cardio, I feel like a right rebel. I feel like Jim Morrison because I've missed a day's cardio. You are in good shape, aren't you, though? You, you, you do hold it together quite well, but it's nice to know, it's for someone like me who's slightly chubbier, it's nice to know that you have to try and it doesn't just happen. It's not by choice. Believe me, my natural... My natural thing would be to probably eat a medium amount of stuff most of the time and maybe do one or two workouts a week and then get bored, not do it for six weeks and do it again. I've ended up where I am as, I mean, just go on YouTube and, and look at any set of me doing the Apollo. I literally cannot do that. Uh, a certain, below a certain level of fitness you get out of breath on the end of the punch it just looks de- it looks like a desperate performance instead of an energetic performance so I have no choice I have to keep my body fat at 13% I wouldn't go below that like a you know like bodybuilder or six pack or anything but if I, keep, if I keep my body fat around 13% I can do anything that does me the rest is just a bonus you end up just looking a bit younger overall uh, Russell I want to cut straight to it today because I've got so much to ask you and I want to the way this podcast ends up feeling is like an episode of this is your life which i actually quite like right and okay, cool. i'm gonna start off with probably quite a quite an intense question to start off with but you've joked about it with me before so i feel like i can ask this um, Go for it. you are a self-confessed quite a camp man and your comedy is quite camp and you've always said to me you're quite a camp individual which i would say i'm as well right yeah how did you yeah. find that at school being an overtly armsy camp straight man to be honest with you there was i don't know if it's my age or a lack of awareness i'm just old enough to come from a group of people who never realized freddie mercury and george michael was gay until it went in the newspaper it seems unbelievable now as unbelievable as people didn't used to know the earth is round but when I was uh, when I was at secondary um, school between 1986 and 1991, yeah, uh, gay was like a sort of you wouldn't really say to someone who was genuinely suspected of being gay at school they weren't the people bullied for being gay. It was just a general term that no one really understood what it meant. If they did, everyone would have realised Freddie Mercury was clearly gay. <laughs> and we would all sing George Michael songs and all the boys would wear the leather jackets and glasses, not knowing what it meant. So it, the honest truth is the first time I ever had any perception that I was camp and it was surprising that I dated girls and liked women was when I went on TV and on stage to a middle class audience. I never, ever, ever in all of my life, even at uni, even after I went into a posh profession in an ad agency, had anyone ever gone, you're straight, really? ever not not once what the first occurrence was when i was was on stage i don't know but 2007 2008 when i was doing my first run and i mentioned my girlfriend and there was a laugh now i'm really good at perceiving what laughs were about and it happened on a few different nights not every night and i was like what is that fucking laugh so i asked the tech and they were like oh they think that you, you're joking because you're so obviously gay wow that and I was like, ah, oh, I'm on to you know, as a comedian, you're like, brilliant, that's great. Any sort of disconnection between perception and reality is 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jokes and so as we've become more and more literate and more and more accepting and more perceptive of non-binary and gay people and all the different wonderful myriads of sexualities that's ramped up more and more um so now i just roll with it i, mean, I probably camp it up more because it's, a, it's in our industry it's a positive thing yeah is it true that you never kissed a girl till you finished high school? I heard you say that, but I just don't believe. I didn't it. kiss a girl in school in school at all. Wow! I, I call it. If, I think there should be kissginity and virginity, <laughs> yeah. and then finally bumginity when you do it out of the bum for the first time with a girl. <laughs> so there's th- there should be three levels of virginity that you pass. Yeah, and they're they're increasingly older. And uh, yeah, no, I didn't. I mean, I had sort of primary school, you know, behind the bike shed discovering fumbles, if if we're being completely honest, like when I was younger than 11, like all tiny, tiny children do. But between the ages of 11 and 17, nothing. No kiss on the cheek, no fumble over a cardigan of a girl's boobs, zero. Wow. Fuck all. <laughs> and in fact, it was the summer... I did one, I left school, I fucking hated school, it was a nightmare for me, uh, I, all my learning went backwards, I just wanted to be popular to stay, keep the bullies off my back, which always worked by the way, I was never hit or bullied, so as soon as I could I went to, to do my A-levels round the corner at this sort of weed smoking fucked up scumbag college where I was able to become a bit more alternative and it was that summer that I met my first ever girlfriend. Wow, how old were you then? So you must have been like 17. I was, yeah, I was, I'm the youngest in my year. So I would have been 17 on, on in the August, the 19th. But I don't know why my birthday's like October on Wikipedia. It's not true. It's August. And uh, I, um, I, so I met that girl in the June. So I was just, just still 16 when I kissed her. Just. Wow. And you've got a very well-spoken about relationship with your dad, haven't you? You speak quite a lot about this. And this is something that I want to touch on, um, which obviously played a massive role in your life at that point and i still can't work out after reading a lot about you and watching a lot how do you feel about the relationship you had with your dad because you said you were very different people but does that is that bad uh, this i suppose it's like uh, a german and a french person living together and being forced to have dinner together with no mutual language skill is it a bad thing not necessarily is it an uncomfortable thing always what yeah. do you talk about nothing what do you have in common nothing it was more like that dad he was like an alpha male sort of weightlifting into rugby not football uh very essex very right wing sort of action man type weightlifter type character manual laborer you prove yourself by getting a manual trade and you know there's i can't find any blonde hair uh, blonde curly hair blue eyes i mean the list goes on and on of how we're different so although I can't really say there was any like emotional abuse, not really, nothing juicy. My parents never divorced. I was never hit. We were just opposites. And that's what led to the fireworks. Um, so that's, I mean, I did, of course, publish a book, The Paperback's Just Out, Son of a Silverback, where I sort of just list and tell the stories of everything, what it was like living with this silverback male. It so doesn't, mostly very, very It doesn't seem really. to have affected you, which I think is crazy. I would have thought this sort of thing would play a role in your life in a way that's sort of negative but you just seem to see the funny side of it which is nice yeah although i suppose 
Now, if we're trying to look for properly negative experiences of my childhood, there weren't that many. It was a typical, yes, we lived in a council house. Yes, we lived in a council road. Yes, my mum was a cleaner and my dad was a manual labourer. But my dad was a skilled manual labourer, sheet metal work. So we had more money than most people I knew. And I do think poverty is relative. I didn't realise till I got to maybe 14, 15, that there were people with even bigger houses and even nicer stuff that went to posher countries. I thought we were the bollocks because we went to... Mallorca, Mallorca yeah. when I was 12. I mean, we, I thought we were millionaires. I had no idea about any of that stuff. And yeah, my dad was really negative and moaned all the time. Oh, my life's shit and all the fucking stuff I couldn't done. But uh, the, the worst that happened to me was I was put down a lot. Like, uh, uh, I wouldn't bother doing that, boy. It'll be shit. Yeah, you fucking rubbish, boy. That won't work. That sort of thing. Yeah. That's the only negative effect I've had on my life, which I suppose has, has made me have to work on my confidence a bit more than other people. But other than that, he was just an unhappy, negative alpha male Essex man. Yeah. <laughs> my favourite story about him, which I know you've spoken about before, is when you thought he was going to say he loved you or at least show some emotion towards you. And instead he said, I, n- I never hit you, lass. Yeah, there was two, well, there was two of those occasions. <laughs> Which you can't write stuff like that. That's just genius. I never fucking hit you. I never hit you. I thought, yeah, was so loving, but he was boasting where he had a drink. I've never, I've never beat my son. But that, I suppose it is quite unusual, really. Most people that didn't have a slap from their dad when they're working class, it's not a long list. And my dad's, out of all the dads, seems to be one that would be most likely to do it, but he never did. But the reason he gave, do you, know, do you remember the reason why? Because um, if I started, I wouldn't fucking stop. <laughs> yeah. If I started, I would murder you. That's terrifying. <laughs> That's fucking terrifying. <laughs> I didn't trust myself because I'm so big boy I'm so fucking strong do you know what I mean I kill you it was, it was like that uh, the only time I actually saw him cry properly cry was on two occasions one was when his own mum died in, in uh, and I was very little and then the other was when his favourite restaurant curry house closed the Akash yeah the Akash he cried he cried the Akash is closed boy Abdul didn't do his tax returns and he cried and he, <laughs> he fucking idolised the Akash because it was massive portions massive <laughs> what an icon this is such an insight into them. I don't know. I'm fascinated by son and dad relationships. I think they're really interesting. And I think you had a particularly interesting one. But I just can't get over... This isn't a question really, but how positive you've come out of it and how you haven't held it or changed anything about yourself because of it. I I think some of the, the main positives with my dad was... Uh, even though when you read it on on a page, I've written down like his cardinal rules in my book, which is don't rely on anyone, take care of number one, fuck everyone else, stuff will probably go wrong, even if you try. They're negative rules, but when there's a lot of positive that comes out of not relying on anyone too much. Okay. I've never been in debt. I've never had credit cards. Um, if I try to write a sitcom, I'm totally into it when I'm working on my sitcom script. I think it's the nuts. I'm totally back myself. But as soon as it's finished, probably fucking get rejected. Bothered. Next. That's the way I work. Yeah. I don't. I don't even have a twinge when I get not selected for a show or if uh, a, a novel. Uh, I've just sent off a novel extract to three publishers that all hated it. Uh, nothing. I don't know if that makes me a serial killer. Not a single negative emotion. I just get onto the next piece of sheet metal or lagging that needs to put in up because yeah. that's what life is, work boy. <laughs> so I've sort of, I've, I've monetized those negative rules and worked out to use them positively. Yeah, that's a massive positive out of that, isn't it? Did, did you ever try and... Sorry, I get really bogged down in this stuff because I do find... I think you can learn a lot about people through their parents and through the relationships through they had growing up. Did you try and please him? Was it a thing to please your dad? Or yes, did you just think, f*** it, I don't care? 
No, oh no. I tried to please them all the time. I tried bodybuilding. I tried going down the gym. I tried doing manly things to impress. But he'd always done it bigger, done it better. I mean, one of the last things, just this horrible coincidence that, that one of the months I started talking about stand-up was the month he died when I discovered there was something you could do called an open spot where you just go and try it unpaid, just one off. And so I thought, I'm going to do that, like a bungee jump. I didn't, it's something you do once, something to tell the grandkids. Didn't think it any further than that. It took me a long while to get the courage. It was from when I'd done a best man speech at a wedding. It was about another four years before I had the courage to do this unpaid thing. And I put it in the diary. And this was about two weeks before my dad died. He was over for Sunday lunch. And I said, oh, I'm going to try stand up. I did that once. I was a blue coat at uh, fucking Butlin's load of shit. Wasting your time, boy. That was the only, that was the only judgment he ever passed on what's fucking changed my whole life and he's like there, I remember me and my friend Mark we were we both wanted his approval my dad used to be in fact a, a competing bodybuilder in fact at wow. one point and we had um, he built a gym at the bottom of the garden and I thought let's give this a go I'm, no matter what I did I didn't put weight I mean I was 11 and a half stone when I'm 16 and I'm 12 stone now no matter what I, I think I put on half a stone and anyway so we, we got all these muscle mags it cost us a lot of money and we arranged them all purposely in the kitchen with all the workouts we were going to do and they were all arranged all over the table and I thought when my dad comes he's going to see we've got muscle and fitness and this and that and he's the one who's built the gym and he's told us about protein shakes I thought this is a sure win on with some brownie points to dad and he came in looked at me and Mark we're oh, fucking old Julie come and look at this come and look laughing in our faces look at that you've only got to bought those do you know what you think they're for bodybuilders they're the magazines that queers buy to look at men boy you bought a queers magazine Julie come and have a look <laughs> And that was the end of his review of, uh, of my mu uh, muscle. He thought that those were magazines that, that gay men buy to yeah. look at men because he didn't believe in posthume equipment or magazines. You're a rusty bar with basic weights. <laughs> you know, that made it more real. Uh, I wanted to ask you this question at the end, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to say it now because it feels like the right time. Has this changed your approach to being a dad? Do you do things differently? Yes, I really, really try not to do the negative, life is shit, no one's going to rely on you, keep yourself to yourself, don't have anyone to stay, they'll, they'll steal your stuff. We always have people staying. Lindsay's mum and dad live 15 minutes away, they're in a support, but Lindsay's mum and dad live 15 minutes away, they stay one night a week. Wow. I mean, it's the, the door, when in normal times, pre-lockdown times, the, the, I never, I can get up in the morning and I have to think, is anyone in the spare room? And that's the way I like it. That's the opposite of my dad no one stays everything locked down the whole time they used my dad used to lock his bedroom door if he was going out my mum and dad's bedroom door was locked put in his pocket and they went out even though it's just me in the house private you keep your shit to yourself make your own stuff whereas i'm very like you know would give a kidney to my best mate if he needed a kidney to, not literally scott if you're listening but <laughs> you, you know if you know what i mean I, I i i and i try not to if things go wrong and our flight's cancelled and we're at the airport i'm like right well Maybe we can stay at an airport hotel. Let's have an adventure. I'll try and turn it into that sort of thing. That's really nice. I think that's a really nice positive to take out of that whole thing. Yeah. Now, I didn't know that you didn't start in comedy. I thought that's where your life went straight out of uni. You had a normal job for a bit. Yeah. In fact, I couldn't go straight to uni because of my, my dad. I, I, there was a two and a half, three year delay. I was sat down at, um, I think I was 16 when I started to do my GCSEs. And my dad said, just to warn you, before you start getting hopes up about A-levels and stuff, the hand will not be going in the pocket. We can't afford it. If you want to do it, you're on your own. Wow. And there's, there's no way to go to university on your own. Um, I was the, of the year where you still got a tiny, you got £2,000 worth of assistance uh, my year. Um, and unfortunately, rent at university was, guess what, £2,000, which left me on £0, 0 pence. 
if you took the student loan that gave you 1800 quid how are you supposed to live on that for a year and buy your books impossible so i was stuffed um so that was the end of that so i had to work for three years to save up the money to go to uni i was determined to go by 21 so i could still feel 18 and hang out with 18 year olds and it not look too tragic um so i just went as an 18 year old in my head but a 21 year old on paper and um i took myself so i was already three years behind um age-wise but it did me a lot of favors to be honest because working in a shop for three years, it's sort of nothing. I've got nothing against working in a shop. I've done it at the end of the day, so I'm allowed to say whatever the fuck I want about working in a shop <laughs> on a high street. It, it just made me not want to do that again. Put it that way. So I came out of uni already nearly 25. Uh, I did uh, English literature. How practical. But I, did really, <laughs> I did really well on my degree. I got the top grade. And I luckily for me, I did um, a creative writing component. So I was able to say BA in writing and wow. literature. And that was enough to get me a door open at an ad agency. And that's with me. No, I never the first choice of booking ever on, on, a, on a show. And then once, if you open the door even slightly for a toe, I will show you what I can do. Then by all means, close the door in my face. That's my policy. Yeah. Um, my, you know, nine out of 10 times when people see what I can offer creatively and on production and everything like that, um, I get a bit more invited in. And that's what happened with this ad agency. They, they had all their graduates who'd done the proper advertising courses, a lot of Oxbridge background. And I went in as the wild card from uni with no experience, council estate accent, which I've cleaned up a bit since then. And of course, on the, on the zero pounds, zero pence placement, I was able to outthink them creatively you can't teach it i was able to think up more funny ideas sillier ideas better as soon as i worked out about branding that only took me two weeks i was a natural for it and then i loved it to be honest i absolutely loved the job i walked into copywriter i loved it but you decided to give comedy a try after a bit it was within 18 months i'm not showing off this is just what happened i was head of copy i could hardly believe it so i was already Bearing in mind, I've got 16 cousins and no one's got an A-level, no one's done anything. So 18 months out of uni, I'm sitting on pink cubes being asked to think up funny headlines by posh people. It's, it's like, <laughs> it's the stuff you dream about when you're a chav, when you're little. I've got pedigree cats, I've got a flat in Clapham, I've got fucking dips in the fridge, Yeah, uh, a beautiful girlfriend. It was fucking like, it was like I'd won the lottery and my income was great for, for someone from my background it felt like a, I was a multi multi-millionaire in reality it was just like a solid London wage I didn't know that um, and it was just someone someone just said something at work it was like I was always pushed forward at pitches on advertising pitches to do like the funny explanation of the idea if it was a funny brand if we were working on pot noodle or something like that and uh, they just like you're really good whenever you tell the stories from our nights out and, you know and I don't, everyone in the boardroom laughing there's someone at the door is, is it, that is the pizza? It, I don't know. What's your map showing? Let me check. It shouldn't have even left the restaurant yet, but it may be there. Let me just double check. One second, Tom. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. It sounds like it's been... Well, a- it's like being 19 again. <laughs> I can't quite believe it. I'm going to need a moisturizing antibacterial wipe. Oh, can I- it's gonna smell my hands gonna smell for weeks hello hello can you hear me yes well oh. she's delighted this is good i feel like we're feeding the russell kane family tonight yeah. on dangerous dinners which is a positive so Lindsay said i've got a doctor's appointment what's dangerous dinners you're on your own good luck <laughs> and i was like oh fuck because <laughs> i had to move it i did to move it didn't we because of steph so yeah anyway she's well happy because normally good. mina would be getting like posh sort of pizza that we like you know with the like with a basil leaf on it which would cause a meltdown yeah trust me there is no basil leaf on what's in front of me so i feel like we spoke a lot about you growing up um we not even touched on comedy how did it start so i was at the ad agency loving life couldn't believe I was sitting on pink cubes coming up with posh stuff. And they kept saying, you're the funny one. Have you ever tried stand-up? And just by sheer bizarre bad luck, I'd gone to the one uni in the land that didn't have a stand-up club. So obviously it wasn't part of my childhood. You don't like if you're in a working class house, go to the theatre at the weekend. You no. just get a takeaway and then you get stoned over the park when you're a teenager. That's it. End <laughs> of childhood. <laughs> And uh, so my dad, to me, stand-up comedy was Bernard Manning, Jim Davison, Jimmy Jones, the stuff my uncles and, and my, my dad would watch. Um, and if people forget, again, how recent alternative comedy becoming mainstream is. It's so recent. I don't know what year Live at the Apollo started, but I'm pretty sure it's as recent as 2002, something like that. Wow. And until that point, it's you're talking... Um, who are they, like Cannon and Ball and Bobby Dat and all that lot were on telly. They're great guys, but it didn't make me laugh. I guess it's the a very specific that, type of comedy, that. It's, it's up for older people. Yeah. And um, the uh, the comedy that made me laugh on TV would be things like Alan, Alan Partridge or The Young Ones, but that wasn't stand-up. They were actors. I didn't associate with anything I could do. It didn't speak to me as something I could do. It was just something I consumed. And the Edinburgh Festival, I thought, was ballet and opera and all that shit. So someone at work who was from a middle class background explained this world to me and I and I've done this best man speech and I thought, you know what, I am gonna fucking try that one day just to see what it feels like. And it took me, like I say, a little bit longer to get the courage. And then I did this open spot one night at the Comedy Cafe in Rivington Street near Old Street uh, Tube Station in London. And I was like, holy shit, what a dickhead. I'm like 27, 20 years old. This is what I'm born to do. What do I do now? Uh, I've got a brilliant career. And I was addicted. Like like, um, someone having an affair or someone getting addicted to cocaine or heroin, I just couldn't get enough of it in my private life in it, and it, the analogy goes further than that it ruined my life uh, it ruined my relationship I had with my girlfriend it ruined my um, career I couldn't focus properly at the agency it ruined my sleep it ruined my health it was the exact analogy of someone who discovers heroin or someone who starts shagging a toxic person yeah everything fell to fucking pieces because when you're working in an ad agency it's not like um 
being a teacher or something like that, as hard as that is, there's there's no set hours. So your creative director goes, great, Vodafone wanted us to pitch. Russell, that's uh, weekend, we'll get pissed, we're at the office. It was more like a junior doctor, you don't get to decide your hours type career. I couldn't take homework with me and mark it on the train. I had to be in that fucking building, sometimes more or less 24 hours, sometimes literally 24 hours sleeping at the desk or whatever. And so that didn't go down very well. Do you remember when it started to fly? when the gig started to all click into place and it all started to work for you? First month I left work. I say I knew I had three months, three to six months money where I could continue to spend and enjoy life at the same degree, pay my mortgage. So I had six months where I need, and in that six months I needed to get up to earning 350 to 500 pounds a week to hit my bills. That yeah. was my target. <clears throat> I've made enough friends at enough clubs comedy store etc where i thought i could just about do that and then lucky for me in the june i went for my first audition because i now had an agent and that was to host little um segments on channel five because when they bought in programs from the us the programs were too short so they wanted little comedy idents okay. of me doing funny things in america so i did the casting and got it and they was like right we're flying you business class you're going to be filming in america here's the fee well that fee would i knew would get me to christmas amazing and I thought, I'm going to do my first Edinburgh show. I've got an hour's worth of stuff. Up I went in 2006, nominated for the newcomer, and then it just snowballed from there. Wow. Did you have a rock and roll period when this started to take off? Did you fully bathe in the light of comedy fame for a bit? Um, so far, comedy, as you all know, is a very sober, nerdy thing for most of us. There's a few people I've seen who managed to be like drunk backstage and part, I don't know how they do it. And maybe it's because you got to remember by this point, I'm 28 years old Yeah. and I fucking went hard when I was younger. So I've got a lot of that out of my system. I've been to Ibiza nearly 19 times. I've fucking gone to bed at 5 PM the next day more. You've done it. More than I can count. So all of that shit was out of my system, the drink, drugs, rock and roll bit. So far as the sex side of things, that, by that point um, in um, October, November, I was already with another girl at that point. Um, so I had a steady relationship. I'm a bit of a serial monogamist, thank God, because that would have been distracting. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I stayed that way until 2012. That's, the That's when I had my year of bathing in, in the light, if you want to call it that. Shagging anything that moves, I would call it. Uh, <laughs> and anyone that moves. So you um, had that so moment, I, though, in 2012. But, but very delayed, yeah, oh, okay. delayed. But I'd never had that because even at my, at my at the heart of my Ibiza, um, chewing my face off dance floor party days, I've always had a girlfriend from age sixteen right. to two thousand and twelve, solidly, and with with just a couple of weeks in between here and there, normally, where I would go out thinking I'm going to fuck everyone that moves, and then fall in love with the first person I fucked, <laughs> over and over again. So I got to two thousand and twelve, but I am actually going to have a year of being single this time. It's because whatever I'm doing is not working. I'm having these serious relationships for three years and then moving on. So maybe if I saw that the grass isn't greener in singledom and freedom and sexual freedom, I'll be more inclined to properly settle down. And indeed that was the case. So you only did 12 months of out and about. 12 months is enough. If you're, yeah, I think it is probably for if I'm sure for most guys, if you're going to be single and you've never been single, I would give it two or three years to discover yourself or whatever. But if you're going to be single and you've never been single and you're slightly in the public eye and you're known for being funny and you're doing all right, you will condense three years of it experiences, <laughs> he said somewhat euphemistically, into 12 months. Um, there's also, in my mind, there's 
from looking at your career, there's two versions of you. There is when you sort of came up on the scene and you had the big hair and you dressed in a certain way. And there's <coughs> you now, which is a lot smarter and I guess slightly more conventional. What changed? What was the, well, the, what was the sort of the reason that you made that switch? Because I think it was a switch, right? Is this, if only that was the full story. Uh, but mind you, I have to say, I wouldn't want to be any more famous than I am having experienced it it definitely wasn't like what i thought it was going to be like i like being able to go to restaurants and i get gawked at a bit but life i can do more or less anything i fucking want really still which i love um it's not false modesty trust me anyone who even experiences it for a day would know how incredibly uncomfortable it is not to be able to eat a sandwich without someone filming you and all that shit and everyone knowing your business and taking pictures of your mum or your my brother's got mental health issues i wouldn't want you know i'd fuck that that's not for me i want the big rooms i want to do stand up i want the money i will admit it but i don't want to be gawked at at the swimming baths and all that shit anyway the story is is sadly uh worse than that when i came through pre what you would you'll find on google we're talking 2006 when i first started getting recognition at edinburgh started getting serious like critical recognition and doing my first telly jobs if you look up that stuff if you look up my first live at the apollo 2007 you will not see big hair skinny jeans eyeliner you will see conventional boy next door normal jeans slight scruffy hair not in a suit by any means but a 28 year old man who looks about 21 to look a bit younger than my age uh, in a t-shirt and jeans very russell howardy very normal yeah talking about his normal family talking about his dad and all of that and i've immediately yet sort of we can relate to him he's a rob beckett normal guy success off i took sadly um as soon as i got proper heat after i won the the perry award whatever you want to call it edinburgh comedy award foster's comedy award that's when it really fucking went crazy for a year 2010 2011 i just what can i say it just went to my head a bit not material wise the act stayed the same this is the problem so i'm still on stage going my dad my mum my nan my cancellor state you can relate to me i'm just normal like you in a normal relationship but here was some cunt with eyeliner and spiky hair and it was different to what people had seen two years before so um i didn't know this was happening it it, it, being fair on my younger self if you come from a, a council road and no one ever gives a fuck about anything you say and no one in your family has ever given a shit about anything anyone does and every, all the boys who come from your area none of us ever go on to do anything yeah it you do want to what's wrong with wanting to feel like a rock star if you've worked your tits off totally. i didn't see that i didn't see the harm in it i thought oh, mate i can i'm gonna do ready and fair. i'm gonna spike my hair i'm gonna wear eyeliner it's, it's like this is like rock music i've fucking made it i didn't have anyone to guide me to tell me comedy is different and say actually you can't do that because of the nature of your material is all about my normal family, my this, normal, that. If you start dressing abnormally and rock star, there's going to be a disconnect between how you are, how you were and what people fell in love with and how you're portraying yourself. And people are going to smell a rat and they won't like what you're doing anymore. Someone did say that to me eventually about in like 2012. <laughs> but sadly, I did two years of, well, you can see the pictures on Google where I was just <laughs> having a laugh. I thought stand up. I'm taught every, anything goes. You can. You don't even have to be a man or a woman. You can be something in between. You can express yourself. It's not true. Believe me, that is not true. People will judge you very quickly if you don't toe the line, uh, appearance-wise, in relation to what, how you've been before, what you talk about. Um, so. Um, 
I didn't know that's what was being said behind my back by, by certain people. Right. Quite, quite rightly, because looking back, that is how it looks. So I quickly changed management and they were like, trust me, comb your fucking hair, shave your face, put your suit on. You're doing naught comedy about working class life to people that work their tits off. They don't want to be see someone showing off and thinking they're better than them, which is how you look when you put yourself out like that you're not Russell Brand who can get away with it because he's this philosophical genius and he's very effete and we we go with it because everything adds up as soon as someone said that to me it's like a light bulb went off and I was like okay fine put everything in the bin and the rest is history wow <laughs> that's really that's fascinating I think you can be quite philosophical about that time though I don't think you should beat yourself up over it, it no I don't it, you know what I mean God, I called it just in it was I, so from a from a business point of view let's be let's just talk about numbers yeah from a business point of view the shit the people were, re- here, were really surprised when they heard me speak like this they were re- my, my, my management was shocked when I walked in through the door ready to change management what why we, we'd kill to have some of our clients where you are sort of thing the ship was cruising along yeah packed with passengers the theatre was full. Everything was great. I didn't realise there was a fucking great hull, hole in the hull. And if I had carried on, I would have started to take on water and disappeared down a sort of, um, I don't know if you're into literature at all, but the way sort of modernism went, there's only so much experimentation you can do before you start to become niche. Yeah. And then the number, then the numbers would have dropped off. Then the telework would have stopped completely rather than just slowing down as it was starting to do. And I didn't realise why. So, of course, I, and then I met the right woman. Lindsay was like, you're a good looking bloke. Don't dress like a cunt. I think she put it a bit more bluntly. <laughs> and, and, and then phew, the, play, the the ship, we patched up the ship and it's been plain sailing ever since. Now I'm busier than ever. And I'm really doing, I just want to do stand up. I know it's boring. Tom. I love I love sitcoms. Yeah. I love being on TV. I love doing stuff. I love writing books. But I am like a more... If I had to be mega mega and play the O2 every night, if I had to be, I'm definitely more a Lee Evans than a Peter Kay. Yes. Um, uh, if I had to be, but I quite like the le- having my cake and eat it. Being the sort of three thousand seater man is a bit of a cake and eat it level where you can just about go to the shops. <laughs> yeah. In terms of the art of comedy, what's your approach to it? Because I think there's a few camps, but there's the camp of the the Jimmy Carr, the writing down, the analysing, the removing as many words as possible till it's this perfectly shaped thing. And then there's the more sort of Peter Kay storytelling camp. Where do you find yourself and what do you aspire to be, I guess? Definitely the more Peter Kay storytelling camp. There's no yeah. doubt about it. I mean... I can write jokes. I can, in fact, like a party trick, really. I can, someone can give me a subject and I can think of a one-liner. Yeah. But I can't deliver them. Now, believe me, I've tried them. It's a really nice way to, you know, if you even, you can have a really good story that doesn't have a really banging punchline at the end. Um, it's nice just to, <coughs> sorry, I'm trying to eat pizza and talk. This is the it's difficult not, thing about this podcast. It's not, who can ignore a steaming pizza? No <laughs> uh, It's It's difficult um, not to, 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 to resist a one-liner joke but for whatever reason I just get groans no matter how good the joke is right. I can't and no matter if it was a really brutal funny Jimmy Carr but I just can't the only ones I ever get away with is if, if people can see me thinking them on the spot while I'm 
while I'm bantering with an audience member. Yeah. So I have to do stories like I've told you today about my dad, about I wouldn't, <laughs> I've never actually done the one with the bodybuilding magazines, but it would make a great routine. It would, it would make a brilliant stand up routine, that for example. Because that's the sort of comedy I aspire. That's the, that's the comedy I love. It's the Sir Billy Connolly sort of storytelling. There's, yeah, can, cannibalize yourself. Yeah, there's, there's almost nothing going on, but you're just, it's just hilarious. It's seamless. I, I think the the, the 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 two type of performer thing is is even more stark than that. Uh, I do think there's the sort of the funny person stand up. So I'm just a high energy be asking around funny person in real life who's just sort of put a microphone in front of the cake hole that was already saying that shit anyway. Yeah. Whereas someone like Frankie Boyle, someone like Jimmy Carr, someone like Stuart Lee hone these perfect comedy sets that are, let's face it, much more likely to be watched and remembered in a hundred years than, than our stuff. So um, the, the, the positive is I'm my real self when I'm on stage. There isn't really like a, a comedy me and an at-home me. What, what you see is what you get. If you come round and have a coffee with me, I'll, I'll be cracking jokes trying to make you laugh. And some comedians don't believe that. They're like, why are you on the whole time? You don't need to crack jokes. Like, when we're in the hotel, it's exhausting. I'm like, no, you don't That's get it. Me. This is what I was like before I did stand-up. Yeah. I have to tone it down so people don't think I'm showing off in real life. Um, so I think you're either monetized your existing personality and you were always hilarious or you're an extremely gifted funny writer who's funnier but maybe in a more private way or you or some people are not funny at all in real life they're very shy and have a small social circle but when they get on stage this this writing comes out of them that is just amazing like frank stuff frankie Fra boyle fascinates me as a yeah, character well, he obviously i don't know how much of how, what percent of his stuff he writes but i know he definitely has got a long time collaborator whereas i have unless i'm forced to which would be very unusual in this business i will not speak another syllable written by another human being i've tried yeah but it just dies uh, in my mouth and in fact that's one of the battles i have on the steph show is they've got this amazing writer he's brilliant he writes for have i got news for you but for whatever reason i just can't i have my stuff is me i can only only do me it's quite restricting but at the same time i don't write stand up if you look at my um show that won the the big award it was 10 bullet points all my shows are 10 bullet points wow. they're 10 some, sometimes under the bullet point they'll be remember remember to do the tag about recycling remember to do the bit about the prius remember to do that it will but it will literally be a 200 word document probably if that where do you and i'm going to throw some names at you and i just want to know what you feel about them and where you where their comedy falls against yours because mm -hmm. they're divisive figures for a comedian i think cool. how do you feel about ricky gervais and james corden two very different people where does their comedy world fit with yours ricky ricky gervais funny they make me laugh I personally wouldn't have the courage to do the jokes he did and I wouldn't perform the jokes he did. Is it because I love people and I don't believe that anyone's feelings should be hurt or am I a vanilla coward that wants everyone to like me? <laughs> you work it out for yourself. But uh, I would be lying if I pretended not to watch everything he did and me and Lindsay send clips to each other. So on a personal level, I do watch his stuff and I watch very few comedians. James Corden? Well, James Corden, I wouldn't call a, a comedian as such. I would call him an actor and actor and presenter. And I don't get... I understand there's this sort of social meme, I mean, in the old sense, not in the funny gif sense, a social meme of disliking James Corden, but I haven't figured out why. Good, because I agree. And that's what I want no, to... No, but why? Why are we supposed to dislike it? Is it, is it jealousy that he's gone and smashed it in the US? Maybe. 
But no, but I can understand why we're supposed to dislike Ricky Gervais. We're supposed to dislike him because he's made jokes that some people find horrific about transgender people or fat people or depressed people. So I can understand why I'm supposed to not like Ricky Gervais, even though I find his shit hilarious. But why am I supposed to not like James Gordon? What the fuck has the guy done? <laughs> what, no, what has he done? I don't know. Exactly. I don't know. Don't but get he, it. But he, you are right, though. He, he is a sort of a target for a lot of people. And I just yeah, no, know- I've never joined in with that. And on a program, if anyone starts saying that, I keep quiet. Yeah. I mean, also, he's quite a, he's done quite well. He's a powerful guy. I might want to work in America one day. <laughs> Don't f- him off. I went to see it. And also people forget uh, he is a, a t- he's earned his place. I went to see him in One Man, Two Governors. Yes. He was so good. It's one of the most I've ever laughed in the theatre. I would never. I don't queue up at the stage door for fucking anyone. And I went and queued at the stage door like a little pussy hole just to tell him I thought it was great. <laughs> um, I think that's a lovely place to end, Russell. Thank you so much for joining us on the Day My pleasure. This podcast. Um, before you go, can you rate your takeaway tonight? Tonight, Russell Kane, we landed on Dirty Pizza. How would you find it? The fact that I couldn't stop eating it even while I was talking, I'm going to have to give it a, a, a reluctant eight. Oh, God. This is where you become fat now, isn't it? Cause of I know. This. You're giving me diabetes, Tom. Well done. <laughs> it's the one that only. It's Russell Kane. Thank you. Cold food, but hot guests. It's the Dangerous Dinners Podcast. Ah, lovely old Russell. He was nice, wasn't he? I really liked having Russell Kane on the podcast. Um... I'm fascinated with his relationship with his dad. I really could have sat there and listened to him talk about life growing up with a big bodybuilding, scary dad bloke from Essex. Anyone else love that? I I just thought it was really, really fascinating. What a vibe that must have been around a dinner table to have Russell Kane, little young Russell Kane there and big old scary dad bloke. Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining me through another journey through the Dangerous Dinners podcast. Thank you so much for Russell for doing it. And if you've got to this point, hey, can you do me... I know I say this every week, but it really would help if you subscribed to this podcast. Go and press the little subscribe button. It'll land in your inbox every single week for free. And hey, why don't you scroll down on Apple Podcasts and leave a review? Leave a little rating or review. That really means a lot to me. Really helps with uh, pushing us up the charts, which is important, I suppose. Is it? I don't know. Uh, So thank you. Uh, Ratings, reviews, shares, tell your mates, that sort of thing. And we'll be back same time next week. On the show next week is a good one. I'm not going to say any more than that. It's just Gossip Central next week. I'll see you there. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 